Good morning. You know, the Bible is a book of contrast, isn't it? If you think about it, there are a lot of ways in which we see that that's true. We can examine the idea of God's part and man's part. Man's choice and God's sovereignty. We can look at contrast that exists with regard to humanity. Paul in Galatians 5 speaks of some who walk according to the flesh and others who walk according to the Spirit. There are contrasts that are tensions in the Bible between the grace of God and law. We also can examine this contrast, this dichotomy, this two sides of the same coin when it comes to the idea of being lost and being found, of bad news and good news. Kathy and I have this thing, and we've had it as long as I've known her, to where whenever one of us is approaching the other and we say, I've got good news and I've got bad news, which one do you want first? It's always the same answer. Maybe it is with you too. I want the bad news first. Why? Well, I know it's coming. I want to go ahead and get it out of the way. And I realize that getting out of the way, there's hope that there's something better on the other side of the bad news. The Apostle Paul must have subscribed to that same philosophy because when we look at the text that Mike read so well a moment ago in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we see a dichotomy, we see a contrast. We see the bad news and then the good news. And we can't appreciate the good news until we have really contemplated how bad the bad news is. If you look at the scheme of redemption... That is, God's eternal plan to save us, it consists of the idea of our needing salvation, that coming through Christ and it being to the glory of God. When we approach our text in Ephesians chapter 2 and we look at our subject, we realize that the first thing that the Apostle Paul does is he he exposes the problem of sin. Have you ever heard of Greg Mathis? Greg Mathis grew up in the projects of Detroit, Michigan. When he was 11 years old, he joined the gang. And by the time that he was age 16, he had been arrested for breaking and entering, for vehicular theft and for shoplifting. And by the time that he was age 16, he was the leader of a gang of about 40 people. And at the age of 17, he was arrested and tried as an adult for carrying a concealed weapon. When he was in prison, destined to be one of the statistics of the penal system, his mother came and paid him a visit. And in the course of that visit, he broke the news to her, as he had never done before, that his life of crime was breaking her heart. She says, I want you to make me proud, but you've got to realize you don't have a lot of time to do that. And she informed him that she had terminal cancer. The correctional institution there, knowing this information, gave him a medical hardship early release. And he made the most of it. He decided to enroll in college, and not only did he graduate, but after that, he went to law school and got his law degree, and after that, he was appointed a district judge. He became one of the leading community activists in Detroit, and since 1998, he is the host of a court TV show that you're probably familiar with. You know him, not as Greg, but as Judge Mathis. Don't we love those stories of transformation? where someone goes from a low point to an extremely high point. 
Don't we love to hear from somebody going from criminal to crime fighter, from going from one who is selfish to one who is a servant, from rags to riches? But spiritually speaking, all of us stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of that when he says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which we all lived according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, in which we all lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Really, that's bad news if you think about it. But what you'll notice is the Apostle Paul is in the middle of a discussion. This isn't the beginning of the letter. The beginning of the letter is where he, after greeting the church, says all spiritual blessings in heavenly places are in Christ. That there is such good news that you mean so much to God and that Christ is so important to you. You have an opportunity to be God's most prized possession. But before you can see the hope that's on the other side of this, you've got to understand how dire and how difficult things are. And so the Apostle Paul in the first part of this is going to give us the bad news. It is my responsibility this morning to be the bearer of bad news. In a few moments, Hiram gets the pleasure of giving you the good news. Part of the bad news is that we need to see what it was that we were. What were we? In a word, we were dead. And the idea of being dead is that we were lifeless. We were without spirit, literally, the word means. And the concept of death is certainly described for us in the Bible. And as we walk through what Scripture says, we get an idea of what is involved in death. In James 2, verse 26, for example, you have the the idea of the body without the spirit, of, of faith without works. There's a separation there. And the Apostle Paul says, this was you. You were separated from the life that God intended for you to have. You've got to come to understand just what's involved here, that you have fallen away from Him. If we're going to be able to appreciate how rich the good news is, we've got to understand where we are before Jesus Christ. In January of 1987, a woman by the name of Rosalie Bradford had just turned 43, and she got on the scales at 1,200 pounds. She, for decades, had the Guinness World's record as the heaviest woman in the world. She was despairing. Her doctor who treated her said she's committing suicide with her fork. In fact, it was so bad, she was so despairing of her situation that she actually attempted suicide. Her family members and friends reached out to her and said how much that she meant to them and how valuable that she was. And no less than, and you have to be of a certain age to even know who this is, Richard Simmons reached out to her having heard her story. And encouraged her to understand the value that she had. Sent her several exercise videos. It was so bad at first, all she could do was clap along to the videos. But by the end of the first year, she had lost 420 pounds. And before all was said and done, Rosalie Bradford lost 917 pounds. Can you imagine how much better she felt on the other side of that? 
But before she could get there, before she could realize that, she had to take a good look at herself and to realize exactly where she was and to say, I don't want to be there anymore. The Apostle Paul is breaking bad news to us and he's saying, you are dead in trespasses and sins. And as we break down what is involved there, there are trespasses. That's the idea of going where you should not go. They're sins. This speaks of the guilt that we bear in standing before God. When we look at transgressions, that means to take a false step and to lose our footing. And the Apostle Paul says, that's where you were. You were going places that God said that you should not go. When God looked down at your life spiritually, He could say with all justice, you are guilty. You have lost your way. I have laid out a road for you and you've deviated from that. So we've got to understand what we were. But another thing that we've got to understand in this bad news that Paul is breaking to us is how did we get there? How did we get to this place where we find ourselves away from God? And as he examines that for us, he wants us to understand that this place of sin and transgression is a terrible place to be. We understand that what it involves is a, a walk, or what it is that we're following And as the Apostle Paul further breaks that down, our circumstances were that we were following the wrong road. A few years ago, our family went out to San Francisco, California. And while we were there, I decided I wanted to drive down Lombard Street. If you know anything about it, it is the the crookedest road in the world. It starts up high and it works its way down toward uh, the, the piers. And it has eight sharp turns, better known as switchbacks. And there's a point on that road where there's a 22 degree downward slope. And before 1922, when they improved the road and put in those switchbacks, there was one point where it was a 27 degree downward slope. And there are all kinds of distractions. And as you might imagine, there are all kinds of near misses, there are brake failures, there are wrecks, and there are even fatalities. It surprises me that it's also one of the most popular roads in the world. In the summertime, in the middle of the day, sometimes you've got to queue up and wait 20 to 30 minutes just so you can get a a chance to drive down Lombard Street. Why? People love the thrill of it. The adventure, the, the ability to say, I survived Lombard Street. You know, when we think about the road that the Apostle Paul is laying out for us, the picture is clear that the reason why there are so many people traveling this road is because it's popular. It seems fun. It's an adventure. And how the devil paints the picture of sin that way for us. That it is something to be embraced. It's something to indulge in. You know, Jesus lays out in the greatest sermon ever preached the fact that there are two roads in this life. And there's one that's narrow and it's difficult. I suppose, in a a way, it's like this Lombard Street, except that not many people want to be on it. But there's another road. And that road is easy, it's broad, and there's so many people on it. The majority, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. But the thing is, those that stay on the road to the end have a 100% fatality rate. The Apostle Paul is going to tell us why so many people get on the wrong road. But we need to understand, how did we get to be dead in trespasses and sins? It's because that we're following the wrong road. And akin to that is the idea... That on this wrong road, we find ourselves there because what the Apostle Paul would say later on. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as the other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding dark and being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them and the hardness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to sensuality with greediness to pursue every form of impurity. How do so many people get on that road? It's because their thinking has been distorted. It affects our, the spiritual symptoms are that it affects our understanding and our feelings. You know, the concept of walking is a, a very prevalent one in the letter to the Ephesians. Did you know that that word is found eight times in seven verses? And Paul lays out there for us the ideal, what we should desire to do, and what he wants us to do is to walk in a way that leads to good works. Ephesians 2 and verse 10. He wants us to walk worthy of the great calling with which we're all called. Ephesians 4 and verse 1. He wants us to walk in love. Ephesians 5 and verse 2. He wants us to walk as children of light. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. But those of us who find ourselves dead in trespasses and sins are not walking in that walk. We're walking in the Ephesians 2 and verse 2 walk. We're walking in the Ephesians 4 verse 17 through 19 walk. But we also know that we got there because we're following the wrong ruler. The Apostle Paul identifies it as the prince of the power of the air. Paul's going to talk more about that when he begins to close that letter in Ephesians chapter 6. And he enumerates all of those spiritual beings in Ephesians 6 and verse 12. But don't miss that at the very center of this, he's talking about the devil. Verse 11, who he also calls the evil one. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 16. The Apostle Paul wants us to get the severity, the gravity of this situation. The bad news is what we were, dead. How did we get there? We were following the wrong road and the wrong ruler. But I also want you to notice with me that he says in verse 3, why is it that we were there? And in verse 3, he points to one of the three major ways that temptation comes into our lives. And he appeals to the flesh. Because that's what has us so often living in a way that serves ourselves and doesn't serve our Lord. But immorality and impurity and greed must not be named among you as is proper for saints, or neither filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not proper, but rather giving of thanks But know this, that no immoral and impure person or idolatrous man who is covetous has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. How do I know if I'm one like Paul is mentioning here in verse 3? Well, how's my speech? What do I desire? Is it holy and is it righteous? The Witness Protection Program was started in 1971. And since that time, did you know that 19,000 people, and that includes innocent uh, witnesses and cooperating defendant witnesses and their families have been placed in protective custody? And when this happens, they are given uh, new identities along with authentic documents. They are given uh, expenses for their meals, for their housing, for their medical care, and even job training. And despite what you see in just about every dramatic TV and movie program, did you know that since 1971, that not one of the people who follow the program's guidelines, not one, has been hurt or killed? 
we may find ourselves in need of a new identity. Maybe it is because of the course that we have chosen, the cravings that we have, and the way that we're characterized. God wants us to see without any misunderstanding that the bad news, if not corrected, if we maintain that old identity, we're in trouble. But God wants us to understand there's a new identity. There is good news. Come preach to us about it, brother. Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 4, and it should be read just the way Mike did for us. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, has raised us up and made us alive together with Christ. Neil has aptly put it. Paul begins Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 with the bad news, but he rounds out verses 4 through 10 with the good news. Appreciate that Paul begins in verse 4 with those two words, but God. And they make all of the difference in the world. In verses 1 through 3, there's no mention of God or Christ whatsoever. But from verses 4 through 10, Paul mentions God, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, or the equivalent at least 12 times to drive home this one reality. This was our past in verses 1 through 3. But God has created for us a glorious future. That word but is a conjunction, a word of contrast that is meant to really drown out all that has been said before. Just think about times when you've heard that word. Somebody says, I love you, but we're breaking up. You've forgotten everything that's been said before. Or you meet all of the qualifications for this job. We would love to have you, but we've hired someone else. To introduce that word is to silence, or at least to the best of one's ability, drown out everything that's been said previously. And that is Paul's point here. You were dead in trespasses and in sin, but God made all of the difference in this world for us and the world to come because of his grace. This happens time and time again in Scripture. Moses tells us in Genesis 6, 1 through 6, of the corruption and wickedness of the world. But that's not God's punchline. It's in Genesis 6 and verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Or God's people would have been as Sodom and Gomorrah, but he left a remnant. Isaiah 1 and verse 9. In Paul's first recorded sermon in Acts 13, he speaks of the death and the crucifixion of Jesus. And then he says in Acts 13 and verse 30, but God raised them from the dead. You see, Paul is showing us that God rescues and raises sinners. Look at verse five of the text. He says, you are saved by grace. He made us alive together with Christ. There is a new status that we now enjoy. Just like Israel received the promised land, God's grace and kindness. We are exalted to a position of privilege because of what he's done for us in Christ. In verse six, we've been raised to sit with them in the heavenly places that are in Christ. This goes back to Ephesians 1 and verse 3, where Paul says we have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad that God didn't wait for us to get our act together before he stepped in to save us? The reality is, if you study your spiritual resume and mine in verses 1 through 3, we would have never gone to God. And so he had to come to us. He came across the clouds because we were not interested in going to be with him. God in his richness and in his mercy stretches out his hands toward us so that he might save us by his grace. This is what God does in initiating salvation. He rescues sinners and he saves them. Her name is Jessica McLaurin. You may know her as baby Jessica. She made headlines when she was 18 months old in 1987. She stepped into an abandoned water well near her parents' home in Midland, Texas, and fell 22 feet beneath the surface. Her rescue was televised. Some people say they drug things out, but she was raised and rescued. It took two and a half days for them to bring her back. She suffered minor injuries, 
with the exception of losing one of her toes due to gangrene. But she was saved and rescued. Jesus saw us trapped in sin for centuries. He not only comes to the world and takes on flesh so that he might rescue us from the muck and mire, but he goes one step beyond that. He throws himself into the ditch on our behalf. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, God made him to be sin for us who knew we might become the righteousness of God in him. Don't you see? Paul says that God has saved us. He rescues sinners. But more than that, he raises us. Look at the text in verse six. He doesn't just say that God's grace gets us out of hot water. God doesn't just save us, but he raises us. We are not spiritual riffraff in the kingdom of God, saved to be put in a position of servants and janitors. Paul says we're not riffraff, but we're royalty. We sit together in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. What James and John argued about sitting on God's right and on his left in his kingdom, Paul says those seats, those positions belong to all of those that are in Christ Jesus. God has done a marvelous work with us in Christ. You think about the prodigal son and he has this prepared speech and he's on his way home and he's prepared to say to his father, make me as one of your hired servants. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. But when he arrives in Luke 15, 21 to 24, his father says, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. This, my son, was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. God would not have him back as a servant, but only as a son. And that's what he's done for us. We were dead in trespasses and in sin, but God says, you've been rescued. You'll be saved. And I'll have you back in my house, but only as an exalted son or daughter. Paul also says that God has displayed his riches in verse 7. Have you ever considered why the plan of salvation is one that is of grace and through faith? Somebody might say, well, the plan of salvation is by God's grace through faith because no one could keep the old law. And that would be correct. Someone would say salvation is by grace, faith, because we can't earn God's love. And that also would be true. But notice what Paul says in verse seven. So the reason that God has extended his grace toward us. It's so that in the coming ages, he might show forth the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us. Paul's point in verse seven is this. God has saved us by grace so that he might show everyone everywhere how nice and kind he really is. God is love. God is just. God is righteous. But God is also extremely kind and nice. And that's Paul's point. We've been saved by grace so that in the coming ages, people would look down the corridors of time and say, God has immeasurable riches and grace and kindness stored up for his people. Many of us are familiar with and have accepted the reality that God is a God of wrath and justice. And that's true. But the Bible also commands us to look at, to stare at, to gaze upon and to behold the very goodness of God. Romans 11 and verse 22. And that word is the same word that Paul uses here in Ephesians 2 and verse 7 when he says God has displayed in saving humanity the immeasurable riches of his grace. Paul wants everybody to know that God is kind and gracious and nice, nice enough to allow humanity to kill his son. And then to raise him again for our justification and more than that, to seat him on his right hand and then allow that same son to speak up for us so that we might have the hope of everlasting life. God shows the measurable riches of his grace. Notice if you think if you think about God and you say, well, God is gracious. God is kind. Paul says more than that in Ephesians two and verse seven. The English standard has the measurable riches of his greatness. 
The New American Standard has the surpassing greatness, or the New King James says, the exceeding riches of his grace. He's beyond whatever we could fathom about nice or kind. God is all of those things and more. As he saves us by his grace, he shows us the riches. Notice in Ephesians 2 and verse 4, God who is rich in mercy. Would you appreciate this one reality? The only thing in the entire Bible that the Bible ever says that God is rich in is his mercy. He's not rich in wrath. He's not rich in anger. The only thing that the Bible ever says that God is rich in is his mercy. And aren't you glad about that? We were poor and impoverished in our sin in verses one through three. But God is not poverty stricken. He is rich in mercy. No wonder in verse seven, Paul says he can just spill it everywhere and splash it abundantly because it is immeasurable. It is overflowing. It is not the case that he has saved us and said, "Okay, I'll give you one more shot. And if you miss out, if you mess up this time, you and I are through. He won't run out of grace. It's immeasurable. We can choose to run in the other direction and forsake it. But as long as we pursue it, we can have it in Christ. Paul says grace removes boasting. For by grace have you been saved through faith and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not of works so that no one would boast. It's possible for a verse to be used so long to teach a wrong idea that we appreciate we fail to appreciate what the verse is actually teaching. Sometimes we come to a verse like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 with our theological revolvers drawn, ready to say that we're not saved by grace alone. There are things that we have to do. But just appreciate what Paul is saying. You and I are saved by grace through faith, through the kindness of God extended toward those of us who are in need of it through our faith. Paul is saying two things at once. That is, no one knocked on heaven's door and said, you know what, God, it'd be a good idea if you would go down there and save those people. It's not our doing. God instigates salvation all on his own. It's by grace. But he's also saying there isn't a situation where there's nothing that we have to do. It's also by faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Faith without works is dead. James 2 and verse 20. You see how man is justified by works and not by faith only. James 2 and verse 24. Paul says both of these ideas work together. We are saved because of God's grace and kindness toward us. And we evidence that we are appreciative of that grace when we live lives of faithfulness and we respond to him in the way that he would have us to. Paul says grace removes boasting. No one beats their chest in arrogance in the presence of God when we appreciate that had it not been for God, we had no chance at ever really being saved. It's a humbling reality to appreciate that the only reason why anybody would ever sweep through the doors of heaven is because God is kind enough to let us in. No grace, no salvation, but no faith. We won't be saved either. It's imperative that we get this point. A failure to appreciate that God saves by his grace. We run the risk of working ourselves to the bone and never feeling as if we really measure up. A failure to appreciate that we also must have our faith cooperate with that. We may misinterpret Paul and believe that Paul is saying that there is absolutely nothing that we have to do. Paul saying neither one of those things. Paul is saying that God and his grace and in his kindness has stretched out his hands toward us in Christ Jesus. And everyone who latches on to that by faith will be saved. He repeats it twice for those of us that are theologically hard headed. He says it in verse five and then again in verse eight. You are saved by grace. Never shy away from it. Never apologize for it. At the conclusion of this lesson, we'll sing the song written by John Newton in 1772. Amazing grace. We've sung that for years. And Newton did the best that he could with the words that were at his disposal. But if you read Paul's words in Ephesians two, he fell woefully short. God's grace is beyond amazing. It is astounding. It's marvelous. And it extends toward us. 
Maybe you've seen the award shows where somebody's name is called and they seem to be surprised and they get up and they say, I really didn't expect to win this award. And then they bring out a thank you list as long as a CVS receipt. And they say, well, here's all of the people that I would really like to thank. Paul says, when the day of judgment comes and you and I hear the words, well done, that that list, the thank yous on that list will be very short. There'll be the triune God to thank and him to thank along. We won't say, well, I did this and I earned this and I was well behaved here. Thank God for his inexpressible gift. Second Corinthians nine and verse 15. It's what God has done for us in Christ that has allowed us to come into his presence. Grace removes boasting. It removes boasting in ourselves and it ignites boasting in our God. God forbid, Paul said, that I should glory except in our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians six and verse 14. Grace removes boasting. It says it's not because of anything good that we've done, but it's because of who God is. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of human merit, so that anyone would boast. Those who don't appreciate God's grace are always auditioning for his love and trying out for his mercy as if they can do something to make God love them more, but they don't get it. God loved us in our sin. Of course he loves us now. The cross of Jesus was not even to convince God to love us. It was evidence of the fact that that was already true. But people that don't appreciate that God saves us by faith will give lip service and never do anything for the one that ultimately gave his life. Both of these ideas must be appreciated in order to be pleasing to God. Here's the last thing that Paul says. Grace makes us God's redeemed workers. Paul uses a word in Ephesians 2 and verse 10 where he says, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. What is a workmanship? Paul uses a Greek term, which means we are God's new creation. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter two and verse seven, God made Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. God made Adam from the dust of the ground, but God makes his new creation. By grace through faith. God's starting all over again. What God did with Adam has been corrupted through sin and through wickedness, as Paul mentions in verses one through three. But we are now a new creation. Why did God create us again anew in Jesus? Second Corinthians five seventeen says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Why would God do that? Because we as Christians are heaven's advertisement to the world. Being saved by grace through faith means that we are now God's redeemed workers. God has prepared works for us to walk in them. Why do we evangelize and attend worship services and sing and pray and praise? Again, it's not to earn God's favor. We already have that. It can't be earned. It's to express our gratitude toward God through responsible living and through a righteousness that pleases him by faith as we do those things that would ultimately bring him joy. Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. Matthew five and verse 16. Throughout the book of Titus, Paul tells Titus, make sure that the Christians maintain good works. Titus three and verse one. Make sure that they follow after that, which is good. Titus three and verse eight and that they are zealous for good works. Titus three and verse 14. Why would that be the case? Because of, as those that have been saved by God's grace, the only way that we say thank you to God is by living in the way that he's told us to. He has prepared the good works, and all we have to do is step into them and walk in them. You know, when Adam was created, God said, okay, Adam, you've got a job. You tend the garden, and you keep it. 
But when he recreates us in Christ, he says, "Okay, Christians, you have a job. You know where you were. You know where I've brought you. And your job is to advertise my amazing grace to the rest of the world. It's in the spirit of the psalmist in Psalm 66 and verse 16, who says, come in here, all you who fear God. And I will tell you what great things he has done for my soul. That is evangelism in a nutshell. It's to say to everybody, it's not because I've earned it, but because of his grace. And I'll do the good works that he would have me to do. Paul wrote about the grace of God by inspiration. Everything that he wrote was true. Paul knew of the grace of God because it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit as he wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 2. But Paul also knew about the grace of God by experience. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, 1 Corinthians 15.10. The grace of God, which was bestowed upon Paul, equipped him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, Ephesians 3 and verse 8. Maybe we're not as honest with ourselves and where we've come from as Paul was with his former way of life. But he says, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man. And I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was overwhelming and abundant on me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, now I'm a pattern for everyone that would believe. You see, the grace of God says to sinners in the world, God really wants to save you more than you really want to be saved. Latch on to it and be saved by grace through faith. It says to Christians, remember how far God has brought us. We're not better than them. We were just as battered and bruised in sin as they were. But God, who is rich in mercy. Our appeal to the world is this. We've ruined ourselves. It's our own choice. But God says you don't have to be the corrupted and distorted version of yourself that you've always been in sin. But I'll make you new. We'll start over fresh in my son. If you believe that he's the son of God, if you're willing to turn away from sin and confess him before men, if you're ready to confess before the world what all people in the heavenly realms know to be true, Jesus is the son of God and be immersed in water. God says, I'll forgive everything you've ever done. It sounds too good to be true, but it's not. It's just true. And it's the grace of God extended toward humanity. Maybe you need to receive the grace of God today. Be saved from sin, from Satan And ultimately, from yourself. God's extending that toward everybody who would receive it and latch on to it. If you've trampled his grace in the past, you say, I haven't walked in the good works that I should. You can make your way back. His grace is immeasurable. It's exceeding. He's not running low on supply. In fact, the Bible says he's rich in it. And for all that are spiritually impoverished, for all that are broken, he says, come to me and I'll make you well. We're going to sing this song as is our custom of invitation about his amazing grace. And if you need to experience it today, we stand ready to assist you. Come now as together we stand and sing.